something. Um, so this is Kino Kingdom 24, and it's it's a bit of a monster one because I, I watch films over the Christmas and New Year period, Rupert, but I understand you've got another series. <laughs> I do. I've watched all of the original Rocky films back to back. Oh, so not including like Creed, Creed. and stuff like that then? Okay. No, although I do like the Creed films. It's just, I thought, well, I'll go up to 2006 and then maybe, <laughs> well, then maybe we'll move on. There's all sorts <laughs> going on in the Rocky universe, though. I think they're creating a TV series or something uh, as well. An original, I don't know whether it's a prequel or something. They're definitely right. expanding the universe. I'll tell you sure what it how is. Might, not it's sure if it's got the legs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they said about Resident Evil, Rupert. Yeah. Don't you worry about that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to list all my films because I might have to split them into like the next episode, depending right. on how far okay. we get. You don't, you don't want to disappoint. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got, um, I've, I've got, um, a few, I'm just going to riff through at the start, if that's cool, just because, uh, I, I went through a bit of an animated period. So there's a, a few of those. So I'll riff through those quickly. There's about three or four of those for like a couple of minutes and then I'll hand over to you and then we'll do the old tennis match back and forth that the billions of fans are used to. Um, obviously, first of all, uh, I've just got to quickly knock through the sponsorship, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, then. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a drink problem. A lot of pe people, especially during the festive period, get carried away and don't realize that their casual boozing could be getting out of hand. It's only a single step from a cheeky snowball over Christmas dinner to drinking nine litres of white cider in day and screaming teary-eyed at a faded family portrait in a smashed frame. Luckily, here at BoozersAlosers.com, we can help you identify whether you have inadvertently slipped into alcoholism with five simple questions. If you answer yes to any of the below, contact us now and we will enroll you in one of our online detox programs. 1. When you wake up, is your first action to wish you hadn't? and your second action to reach for a bottle of something brown. Two, when you realize that the milk in the fridge is on the turn and you decide to purchase more, is your next memory waking up in a park smelling faintly of onions? Three, can your toilet visits be described as alarming? Four, do people dry heave when you look at them? And five, when the doctor asks you how many units of alcohol you consume in a week, is your answer, hmm? If you've answered yes or no to the above, head to our website and complete an online form, and soon you'll be booze-free. After all, boozesalosers.com. Excellent. Sounds like a good service. Yeah, I mean, especially, <laughs> man, I know I've um, I've uh, been uh, definitely indulging over this period, and funnily enough, I'm going for, like, a, a dry January, which is something I've never done. And when you're talking about Rocky Film Throughput, if, you, if there's, like, mm -hmm. a, you ask a really pertinent question and there's a silence at my end, it's because I'm eating a load of Stilton because I've got so much cheese to get through before it goes on the turn <laughs> that I've just got a little cheese platter next to me. So there might be a quick chest clutch going on every now and again as well. Okay, okay. Yeah. If uh, yeah, okay. If I if I hear you collapse to the floor, then uh, maybe I'll just jump <laughs> off the call. You know what's up. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna go launching in after Rupert. We see what wonders my random film title generator comes up with today. Hopefully, it's not "Marry Me, Granddad" too. Oh, I've lost you. Have you? 
Have you lost me? Dad? Ma'am? Father? <laughs> Am I back? You are back. Oh, that's right then. It's almost like um, the power required to uh, use the random movie name generator just wiped out the internet across South Wales. To be honest, I'm not surprised. I wish I could describe it to you, but it's it's just like a series of blinking lights and weirdly like faucets sticking off it. It's like a huge bronze boiler with steam just like shooting out between riveted gaps. So I'm just going to yeah. just crank it up. And computer. I probably just could have like, yeah, I probably just could edit some, clumsily edit some files together in Audacity and just change the title each week. But I'm not going to do that. I am going to do this. Hold my gun while I kiss your wife. Hold my gun while I kiss your wife. The thing is, every time I hear the word wife in the title, I just think about Danny Dyer, run for your wife. Oh, dear. So sorry. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a title which pretty much kind of gives away the plot in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think what kind of film it would be. It would, yeah. Hold, well, I suppose well, Hold My I, Gun While I Kiss would be the, the, the kind of catalyst for the plot, maybe. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it sounds like something from... You know, like um, those, you get those movies in like the early 90s where it have like some ex-hard man doing comedy, you know, like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot or something. It'd wow. be like the title kind of describes the kind of wacky experience you're going to have by watching the film. So yeah. maybe it'd be one of them. Resurrection of bad early 90s comedy. I mean... Surprise producers would be snapping up, wouldn't it, really? They're, those films are a step above, um, like when, I don't know, someone like The Rock or Dave Bautista like, like looks after a child football team oh. or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was literally a film recently, wasn't there, where Dave Bautista like, plays a hard man and he somehow ends up with a little girl and they have all sorts of misadventures. Yeah. Uh, Sounds crap, Ruben. I'm not, yeah, I'm not I can't even remember what it's called, to be honest. It's probably called Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ, just stop. Or my mum will shoot. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really quickly for me, just a couple of uh, two minutes to kick us off. Um, I watched Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, um, which is a John Constantine, Constantine in this universe, um, based animated series where it's sort of the, the magical aspects of the justice league and mm. whilst it was kind of fun it, it, i really did kind of enjoy it the problem is as with most of these justice league films the focus is spread too thin and the threat is so galactic that you can't really have just a story it just it's going to get out of control like they all do and end up with planets exploding so it's nice to see a John Constantine um, film, but I just wish it was more focused and a smaller scale story, really. Mm, this kind of goes against your principle of not watching anything where something bigger than a shed explodes or whatever it is. <laughs> That's exactly right. And let me tell you, something does explode bigger than a shed in this film. It's a two-car garage. <laughs> Superman's two-car garage goes up in flames, along with his vintage Austin Allegro. 
and his Morris Minor. Um, I also rewatched The Nice Guys, which I'm not going to cover because it's just a, a film I watch every year and I could talk about it every year. I, I did notice um, in this, you know, when you watch a, a truly great comedy and you notice different things each time and yes. different things make you laugh. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, that happened this time. I, was, I can't think of an example, but there were moments when I thought I didn't even notice that before. And I'm just mm. laughing. It's kind of like bottom. You can just look at Russell Crowe or Ryan Gosling and find them both equally funny. Yeah. It, it's I, a very funny film. It's really good. It's one I will watch every year. I watched a Creepshow holiday special, which is a 42-minute uh, Creepshow special directed by, I think it's Greg Nicotero, his name is. He's a makeup artist. Oh, yeah. So whereas I thought it would devolve into CG, it doesn't. It's practical effects. Good. And good. it's just about a, a dude who thinks he's a werewolf going to... It, it's sort of um, a meeting, you know, a, a, a Alcoholics Anonymous for people who are shapeshifters. Uh, and and there's an evil Santa Claus. Forty minutes, surprisingly good fun. And obviously, the title should have signed up to boozesaloosers dot com. <laughs> That's true. A little bit of free publicising there. Um, uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse, very good. Uh, Jake Johnson yes. doing an amazing uh, voice performance. It took me a while to get used to the twelve frames a second thing. It's an it's it, an odd one, isn't it? But they use different FPS depending on the cartoon style the and thing. Yeah, isn't it a case that it starts off like that, but then as he becomes Spider-Man, it there are more frames. I can't remember. There's you know, all sorts does... going on. There is all sorts going on in that film, like some really mad details, and it's it's incredibly, it's just incredibly produced. There's so much going on in the frame. It's the kind of film you could, in a different way to the nice guys, but it's the kind of film you could watch multiple times and see different things every time because. It's all over the shop in terms of style, but it's somehow coherent and actually quite affecting. So, love it. Yeah, really affecting and really and genuinely funny as well, which mm. is good. Um, two more quick ones. I watched Ralph Breaks the Internet, which I think you've covered before, so no need for me yeah. to talk about it. Like uh, it, which is the first one. IMO. Yeah, I think, and it'll come. <laughs> this will come really to the fore in another film I'm going to talk about. <laughs> Hashtag Ready Player One. With with, <laughs> the, with the first uh, Wreck It Ralph film. I, re- I really enjoyed it, but I was a bit tired of the kind of pop-ups in the background. You know, oh, there's, 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 um, uh, what's his name, Pac-Man, there's, yeah. you know, Cubit and stuff. With this, although it was a bigger scale thing, talking about Amazon and eBay, because they're just mm. kind of generic, faceless companies. It's fine. They're just there, you know, just so yeah. we know what they do. So I preferred that. That, w- that was. And really- the ending is weirdly terrifying. <laughs> it's like a big. Um, oh yeah, millions of, of millions of clones of Ralph. It's just really odd. It is quite buzzing. And the last one, uh, which isn't really a review, I once again darfooed myself. <laughs> um, uh, and for those who list, who've listened before, they know what a darfour is. Is when you watch a film expecting something, and it is quite another. And this was a film from 2011 called Leave, billed as a horror on Amazon Prime. It is not. It is not. Is that actually um, by, about plants? It is about... It, it presents itself as a thriller, but it is more about someone creating a fictional reality in their mind to cope with their own death. Jesus. Not a horror. Not a horror. No. So, uh, yeah, I was darfooed. I darfooed myself again. <laughs> okay. um, right, so I've talked for a little bit, and the Stilton is calling me. So I'll uh, I'll let you go on to your first film. Well, while you're eating a Stilton, I will talk about Mulan on Disney+. 
Not that one. Um, the remake. Oh, the live action. Is the live action. Wasn't this très expansive? Yes. Well, I don't know. Yes, it was. But I think more to the point, it was the one that got away in terms of cinema release. So they had to release it on um, Disney Plus. But it's free now, which we found out just randomly went on it. But yes, in terms of the film itself was expensive. It was then released on Disney Plus at a very expensive 20 quid or something. And now it's free. So I don't know when they made that decision, but... There you go. Anyway, so Mulan. I'm not really very familiar with the original Disney film, which was must be 90s, late 90s. Um, but you know, the the story has strong myth themes, a strong message. Um, so yeah, this one was pretty much ruined by the lockdown. Um, uh, but yeah, it's now it's now available for free. So Mulan is tomboy. Um, it's set in China, um, ancient China. Mulan is a tomboy, um, but her family are preparing her for marriage, not for war. Um, so when the emperor introduces conscription uh, to raise an army to fight the northern invaders, uh, Mulan surreptitiously takes the place of her ailing father and joins the army, pretending to be a boy. And there are various amusing scenes where she's trying to hide her secret by not having a shower and stuff. Um, the the enemy the 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 enemy general has this witch with him, who has a, a strange fascination with Mulan, and she comes to her and demands that Mulan reveals a secret so that she can unleash her chi and become the ultimate warrior basically so it's kind of a story about being true to yourself to unleash your true power uh which is fine as a message standard disney message really um however i would say that the film i think i remember this happening with the animated one as well it the film kind of loses its dramatic edge quite a bit when her secret is out because the kind of dramatic the drama before that is about her keeping it obviously under wraps now but then when she when it, she comes out as this person it, it just kind of becomes a regular epic chinese war film after that um the songs have been removed for this version and there are no talking creatures as such uh there's a little bit of magic in the witch and there's definitely a lot of physics defying jumping around sword fighting the action scenes are decent but they're obviously pretty neutered for a teenage audience uh the plot itself is it's mature but quite simplistic there's none of the complex characterization you get in something like crouching tiger hidden dragon for example it's directed by nikki caro uh who's probably most famous for making whale rider about 20 years ago it's a strange one because the film often looks uh, really quite beautiful you know similar to likes of like House of Flying Daggers or something. But other times it looks weirdly cheap with shoddy superimposing on CGI backgrounds, which, don't know, reshoots, second unit, don't know. But it's an odd mix of beautiful and shoddy. Uh, there is a love story in there. It's pretty yeah. standard. They don't 
they don't dare explore the idea that the guy might love Mulan before he knows she's a girl. <laughs> but then I suspect the film probably would have got even more flack than it did um, in a run-up. So, Even more flack? What did it get flack for? Um, the usual kind of whitewashing stuff. But it was I think it was more the, the actress who plays Mulan made some comment or just said something on Twitter in support of the Chinese government clamping down on Hong Kong protesters, I think. So she was not the most liked in the Twitter sphere. Um, anyway, the, yeah, it's one where you do have to keep in mind the target audience, which is young teen girls. You can't really expect anything too complex or, you know, epic. It's pretty, it's pretty efficient. Um, and I think it's a decent enough introduction to the, to this genre. They call Wuxia, Wuxia, you know, the Chinese like kind of semi-magical sword fighting kind of epic. lots of, yeah, lots of, lots of epic views and slow-mo and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, so it's, it's a decent introduction to that. And then once you watch this, you can stop messing about and watch John Woo's Red Cliff. <laughs> hours of it. Four hours. Such a good film. <laughs> really? It is. Good. I thought Luke Besson had lost his way. John Woo, not Luke Oh, John Besson. Woo, sorry, not Luke Besson. I don't know. Oh, I'm looking at Luke Besson, as I said, that's why. <laughs> why wouldn't you be? Is <laughs> <laughs> Big Blue, or is it a bit boring? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's not bad, but it's another one of those ones where it's like, am I the target audience? Not really, but it's, it's okay. It's fine. But I do think it does lose something in the final third when it's like okay her secret's out now it's just standard sword fighting film oh fair enough yeah um i watched lucy from 2014 starring scarlett johansson written directed by luke besson obviously uh, which is why i confuse him with john woo it happens all the time people stop them in the streets and say oh mr besson can you sign my book please and he's like i'm john woo i am he doesn't say it quite like that but you get the gist <laughs> Um, I'm John Woo. I am. Oh, you're from Tonna Revel. Um, yeah, I, I Lucy came out. And I remember it coming out, and some friends saying it was good. Some friends saying it was extremely bad. And I remember having a problem, just a bit of a problem with the whole ten percent of the brain thing. And mm. coming coming off Limitless around the same time, I just thought oh, I can't cope with two of those films. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, this is a this is a film where Scarlett Johansson is a ditzy blonde who gets tricked into becoming a drug mule by a boyfriend who then instantly gets killed. She gets this experimental drug shoved in her guts, which bursts when she gets kicked in the guts. And as it sort of absorbs into her bloodstream, she can then supposedly use a hundred percent of her brain as opposed to 10%. Mm. So in instantly you're kind of, Oh, Okay. It's just, it's a myth, and and yes. and, it, and it's not just a myth that kind of kicks off an interesting action film. All of the dialogue, all of the scenes are focused on this as if it's a real thing. They're just scene after scene, cutting back to Morgan Freeman, just expositing about this myth, and you think, just, okay, I get it. It's not really that interesting, and it's nonsense. So can we move on? Yeah, and, it, I I know what you mean. Just accept that it's nonsense. Have one scene, just explain it, and be done with it. Don't yeah, need to like keep time just, travel. Yeah. Just boom, done. Off we go to the film, and and that really holds the film back because Scarlett Johansson is cool, and and the 
the whole thing about using 100 percent of your brain if we if we take it as a fact it would be that you would be able to do these astonishingly fast mental calculations of probability or whatever what it probably wouldn't mean is you can like levitate stuff and and like see into the past that's just that's just magic and without spoiling the ending it's one of those things as the film has gone i thought this can only end up one way like these films about people becoming hyper intelligent always does and it just does exactly what you think it's going to do in in a pretty tedious way yeah. um some of the special effects are cool and Scarlett Johansson is, is fine in it but it, she's just a blank slate really just a blank emotional yes. slate for a lot of it um and it's just Morgan Freeman doing what Morgan Freeman does these days as we'll see in another film I'm going to talk about and it it just felt I'm looking at the budget 40 million budget 463 million at the box office which is a massive success mm. but it was it's boring it's it was boring because it spent so much time explaining something that could be written off in 30 seconds yeah, and it, it refuses to let go of this as if it's a fact, and I, I, it's one of those things I couldn't, I couldn't let go of. Much like when I watched that film, The Inheritance, with Simon Pegg, and I couldn't get over his wig and his accent, his constant, and Lily Collins being a lawyer when she looks about fifteen. I couldn't get past these hurdles. Hugh, um, <laughs> him, I couldn't get past Simon Pegg wearing a mad wig and doing an impression of Hugh Laurie in his house character. So. Um, with Lucy, it's a hurdle of its own making because it doesn't need to keep coming back to this phenomenon, does it? It no. could just, like you say, one scene, here's a scene explaining it. We know it's bollocks, but we can just move on and accept it because that's what suspension of disbelief is. Yeah. But yeah. And it gets to the point where she will do something, it'll say 40%, and then she will make, I don't know, like a pen on a table float. And then it'll then it'll cut to Morgan Freeman saying, at 40%, you can make pens float. You know, well, I just saw that. I saw that happen. I understand. It's a basic palata. So, yeah, it just got on my nerves. Yeah, it's not the best, is it? I didn't really like Limitless either. Maybe it's just this whole concept just isn't... <sighs> It, the, these films seem in awe of their concept without finding something interesting to do with it. But, yeah. Well, uh, where can we see that if we really want to see it? Uh, that was on Netflix. Okay. Um, I'll do a quick two-minute trashing then nice. uh, of uh, the final countdown on Prime, uh, which is a, a 1980 sci-fi war drama with Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen in which a battleship goes back in time to the day before Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> um, it's pretty cheap, really. The actual black hole sequence is nothing special. Uh, and to be honest, most of the film is them coming to terms with the possibility that they've traveled through time. It, it, it's not too heavy in tone. Uh, I like Kirk Douglas's commander. He, he's very much in the Captain Kirk mold. He's he's always quite light and he's always got a kind of joke. It's not too heavy. Um it actually raises some interesting questions about time travel. Like, if you could change history, then should you? For example, they meet a politician who they know died the day before Pearl Harbor and could have changed the situation. Um, so they know he's going to die if they allow him to get on a certain plane. But should they stop it and change the future sort of thing? Um, or indeed, are they to blame for his death by their mere presence by going back in time? So there's some quite fun stuff there. There's uh, some decent aircraft carrier and plane footage and there's a good dogfight between a modern fighter and an old spitfire 
Um, mm. It's weirdly violent for a film of this type. Like people get shot really harshly and blood just sprays out of them in like Paul Verhoeven style. It's weird um, for such a kind of light film. Otherwise, it was, it was odd. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a decent, um, quite mature time travel drama. And I'd say it's a bit of a hidden gem. Not really a gleaming oh, okay. gem, but a, a diamond in the rough, so to speak. Um, not really sci-fi that much, but kind of thought-provoking and it is enjoyable so it's worth a shot i just when you said that the mix of like sort of like a light story mixed with real severe violence and gore <clears throat> i can just imagine Kirk douglas sort of saying come on martin sheen follow me let's get to the bottom of this and then someone screaming jumping out of a forest and shooting him in the bollocks with a shotgun and then martin sheen vomiting over his, te- his mutilated testicles yeah. like in, in in horror and, it, and it's all in slow motion it's like oh, it's out of, out oh so of you've seen it then <laughs> Weird. spoiler alert jesus vomiting over the mutilated testicles that's probably a lucio fulci film in all fairness <laughs> um, Spewing uh, on Kirk. What was that, what was that, that um, what was that called again? The Final Countdown, and that's on Prime. I might watch that. I think it's it's fun. Yeah, it's sorry. Right. Um, I've never else, heard of it. No, well, that leads really nicely into my next film, which is The Cold Light of Day, not that one, from 1996. I'm looking at the cover. The the events portrayed on the cover of this film on IMDb did not happen in the movie. This is a really bizarre film. It's another one that I've never heard of. And it's, although it is on the internet, it's it's like one of the few films on Richard E. Grant's filmography that there's nothing to click on on Wikipedia. So it's, it's directed by someone called Rudolf Vanderberg. And it's based on, I think it's a Dutch film from 1989, and this was a, a sort of an English remake, <laughs> released in 1996, but set in the Czech Republic and filmed in the Czech Republic. So you've got lots of English actors speaking mm. in English, a few sort of Czech actors talking in broken English that's been redubbed in the Czech Republic. It's quite bizarre. And they've all got sort of Dutch names like Victor Marek and Vladimir Kazant and stuff like that. So it's a bit of an odd one. So the story is, Richard E. Grant is a straight-laced police inspector who is trying to get to the bottom of a series of killings of young girls. Um, And the chief of police is frames someone, basically, and gets him killed in his cell just to keep his... Because he's sort of running for governor again for like the 20th year of running or whatever. He doesn't want any loose ends. So he just frames someone. Oh, yes, all fine. He did it. Boom, boom, boom. Some vagrant. And Richard E. Grant quits the force. And the film is then him trying to find this killer. It's a really bizarre film in, in, in quite a few ways. Because everywhere... You know, we, we talked about Fear.com with Stephen Dorff. Uh, oh, yeah. Where I said every, it's obviously filmed in like Hungary. Supposed to be New York. And everywhere they go was foul. Remember I made that point? It's, it was like everywhere was oddly yeah. foul. It's like that here. You're constantly getting shots of these detectives, everyone smoking, in in like really horrible stained toilets talking and peeing into like stained urinals. And when Richard E. Grant befriends this young girl, played by Perdita Weeks, actually, who was the star of As Above, So Below, a Cardiff girl, mm. go team. And he befriends this girl finds her cycling home by herself. He puts her in his car and drives to this abandoned sort of train cabin she lives in with her mother, played by Lindsay Baxter. Lindsay Baxter turns up and says, why are you here? 
And he looks around and says, oh, this is awful. You shouldn't be living in this squalor. Come and live with me, which they instantly do because he's sort of renting this house behind a petrol station. And it's just as awful. It's like loads of like, like rotten wood and unpainted, unvarnished walls and like snapped banisters. And no one seems to say, is this the, like a, a dystopian future after a Holocaust? Or something? <laughs> is this it's Cold like... Harvest with Gary Daniels? <laughs> it's, it's, is this Threads? So it's it's really bizarre because it, it, it no one seems to mention how awful everything is around them, and it's nothing to do with the plot. So we find out who the killer is pretty early on, and bizarrely, it's a character from Heidi High. Um, <laughs> I will, I'm gonna, I, I'll give you a clue. It's not Paul Shane, Ruth Maddock, or Sue Pollard. Yes, Rupert. It leaves Simon Cadell, who died just after this film was made, actually, and he is a man who is fixated with infantilism sort of thing he it's like he doesn't want to grow into adulthood and he so the film then effectively boils down to richard e grant reopening this petrol station he lives behind making a swing right out front and taking the license plates down of people who drive past in the hope that one of them will be this pedophile so we can then catch him um i'm going to it's a it's not a good film but it is such a bizarre film it's definitely worth a watch and i'm gonna spoil the ending as well because right it's got the strangest ending um sort of um duel i've ever seen in a film so leading up to the last few minutes the girl obviously goes missing because this guy who's got this creepy dog puppet on his hand is talking to her and seduces her into the woods kind of thing and the police turn up from Richard E. Grant's old station and say, right, we know what you're doing. You're basically using the public as bait. Come with us back to the city. He gets in the car with these three innocent police officers, one of whom, yes, I know what you're going to say, plays the shopkeeper in series three of Bottom. Yes. And so they're in this car and they're driving and he sees the girl buy a car in the woods and knows obviously the killer is going to get it. So he leans over, wrenches the wheel, crashes the car, killing two of the police officers and badly wounding the third and it runs off. Nothing is made of it. Nothing is made of the fact he basically just kills some police officers. And when they catches up with this guy, he just to stop him killing the girl, he, he Richard E. Grant just starts sort of singing <laughs> in this in this weird sing songy child's voice, like, I don't want you to play with her. And then the guy with a knife to the girl's throat is singing back, but I want to play the game. And it just goes on until Jesus. the guy loses his temper. And it's it's so odd to see Richard E. Grant lying down in a brown gilet in the mud, facing away from a man, singing nursery rhymes at him uh, to, to, to thwart his, his murderous plans. Um, so it's definitely worth a watch. <laughs> it sounds like it. This is really, really <laughs> hidden in Richard E. Grant's resume, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. But yeah, it's very. He is so oddly miscast because, of course, it's 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 in this dirty, horrible, mm. sweaty, brown, grey village, and he is just walking around with his kind of Shakespearean voice. Yeah, uh, and it, he's it just he's like got too design. much. He's got too much poison class somehow for that. Well, I mean, unless he can really slum it, but I don't think I've ever seen Richard E. Grant slumming it. No, I've seen him um, rock up in a few bits and pieces, but um, it, it's it's a film that's definitely worth a go see because it's like you say said about um, uh, the final countdown. I'd never heard of it, and I was just enthralled by what was happening on the screen. Um, yeah, and yeah, um, it's, it, it is creepy. So that's the cold light of day, not that one. Um, 
And that's on Prime, presumably. <laughs> How did you guess? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Okay. Uh, I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, which I don't think is available on any streaming channels yet. It's on Chile, whatever that is. Um, but this, uh, speaking of, it's weird because it's a weird connection here because, of course, M- Milos Forman, the director, was a Czech. So there you go. There's a little segue. Um, he was best known for, l- later on, he was best known for The People versus Larry Flint and Amadeus. But One Flew of the Cooker's Nest was, that was from, this was from 1975. And he got most of the big Oscars at the time. It was a pretty big deal. Uh, Jack Nicholson plays Randall McMurphy, uh, who's a guy who enters a mental hospital on a ward run by a dictatorial nurse called Nurse Ratched, played by Louise Fletcher. She is professional, but to a fault. She keeps things really tied to a strict schedule. McMurphy is a a roguish loose cannon. Um, So Ratched believes in order. McMurphy believes in just letting loose and living and laughing. And the film is about the effect he has on the patient's and a lot of them are played by pretty famous people. Danny DeVito's in there, Christopher Lloyd, Brad Dourif, all in there. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty much a stone-cold classic, this film. It's a proper, like, anti-establishment auteur movie that could only really be made in the 70s when, well, big cinema films meant just big, risky pictures. So, yeah. Uh, and Jack Nicholson... He is full on bonkers in the main role. He's just full of energy. But he, he's also, his character is very, he's impudent and full of rage. Uh, whereas Ratchet is all about control and discipline. So it's a really interesting conflict between those two main characters. And and a lot of it is played out in the responses of the patients around them. So the responses to their conflict. Um, it's interesting because uh, I watched it with my wife and she thought the ending was very sad. Whereas I think it's ultimately a positive movie, but um, regardless, um, regardless of who survives the kind of McMurphy earthquake, there's, I, I think there's no doubt that minds have been opened. That's really what I see in it, that even though there is tragedy in the film, it's he's clearly had an effect on people and opened minds to different places. Um just through his sheer kind of um, f- free will and free spiritedness. Uh, I like how the film is completely devoid of sentimentality, which is admirable. Um, uh, some of the attitudes might be a touch dated. The treatment of women isn't great, I won't lie. The only female characters in the film are basically hookers or, well, author- authoritarian bitches. But I think. I think it, it speaks to a more universal truth about individual freedom starting in the mind. So there's clearly, you know, a, a universal theme there. Brad Dourif is amazing in this film. Um, he is, he's really young and he's, he's this kind hearted, but vulnerable kid yearning for intimacy. And it's, um, it's, it's a really good performance and it's re- it's worth it for those who are thinking of watching the Netflix series, Ratchet, which is of course based on it's the story of Nurse Ratchet. I haven't seen the TV series, probably never will. 
Um, I watch one but, episode, and you don't you don't need to watch it. Okay, I I do hope that it doesn't portray Ratchet as a monster because she's not a monster. She just values control above all other things, and you will be disappointed then. <laughs> but yeah, and the thing is, I mean, McMurphy's lack of self control brings its own issues. I don't think it's saying that. Oh, this is, you know, she's. I don't think it's saying that his way of doing things is the correct way as such. Um, they're almost two extremes, really. One is just total control, total order, strict discipline. One of them is so off the leash that actually he can cause problems in another way. So, oh, so are we talking about One Flew Over the Cougar's Nest or twins now? Oh, yeah, sorry, I've moved on to twins. Actually, I've moved on to kindergarten cop. Um, so, yeah. Um, very good very good film if you can track it down yeah it, it is it. so yeah i mean if, if you think you're watching ratchet and then you think well can i be bothered just watch this instead yeah and then and then you won't have to see them just effectively rewrite a character that doesn't really need to be explored in the first place <laughs> yes 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 uh of course, <laughs> Scat, scatman crothers is in there briefly as well good oh really yeah of course he is um I watched The Wolf of Wall Street, and this is a film, and I don't think this has ever happened before or since. The one was released in, I think it was 2013. I didn't watch it purely on the basis of the people that I don't like in real life in my office talking about it and like really celebrating it. And I thought, if it's a film you like, I'm not going to watch out of principle. So seven years later, I finally got round to it, and um, it, it's... It's a film about the the life of Jordan Belfort, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, who starts off as a, a stockbroker in Wall Street in the 80s. And effectively, his rise to just ridiculous um, expense and drug abuse and alcoholism, uh, just at the expense of everything else, everyone else, rather, apart from his inner circle. And, were you going to say something then, sorry? No, I, oh, no, exactly as you said. I mean, it's just about his decadence is quite appalling, isn't it? Yeah, and I think because I've had, I think if I watched this at the time, it would have really irritated me because so much time has passed, and I do like. I came off obviously Body of Lies from two thousand eight um, last week, and I really enjoyed that. And I wanted to see another Leonardo DiCaprio film, um, and there's, it's weird watching this because you got obviously Jonah Hill and Margot Robbie in it, uh, who is not shy in this film, and John Bern, John Bernthal rocks up. So was, I was, I was like, oh, I didn't realize all these people were in this, but. The film is three hours long, and it's it's mm. it two hours and twenty minutes of that is him taking drugs and just basically racking up cash. And the, only the last thirty minutes is kind of his downfall, which is fine because it does it does give the film a real energy. The amount of drug taking and it, it just his absolute solipsism, solipsism and wish how much he worships money is just baffling, especially because it's based on a, a real man. I had a few problems with it because obviously i was one of, not so much problems with the film but i was watching it thinking he is probably the single most selfish man i've ever seen in cinema 
and the film not once even the only time it references all the lives the thousands of lives live and livelihoods and families he's affected by rinsing mm. the poor of their savings is one throwaway line in the last 10 minutes of the film where he says oh, i do feel bad for the people i ripped off and that's it you never see any of them you, mm. you just see like the celebratory side of him just rinsing their money taking commission and then literally in some occasion just throwing it into the sea for no reason is that before <laughs> or after the real jordan belfort turns up in a weird cameo weird self-celebratory cameo yeah where he kind of he welcomes uh, yeah his uh, mm. uh leonardo to the stage uh, mm. and uh, it's just you you don't you feel no sympathy for him you can't connect with him at all or feel no sympathy for him and everything he does is is weirdly because it's so decadent and he's constantly taking drugs and just shagging hookers and it's all such instant gratification at like at, at, with no thought to the cost to anyone else like you say the women are just treated really badly in this film kind of like they were in um the one you just mentioned um one full of the cuckoo's nest they're all just prostitutes effectively um and there's like moments when we're supposed to feel sorry for him and you're like, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't feel sorry for him. If anything, I just wish he had a massive heart attack at some point and just because he's awful, surrounded by awful people. There are some funny scenes in the film. Um, there's a scene where he's just completely banging on quaaludes and is trying to get into his car, um, which is quite a funny sort of bit of physical comedy. But whilst it, w- it was quite energetic and colourful, I I don't think I'll ever watch it again because it it's just you watching and thinking oh god there's probably so many of these people in the world mm. just thinking they can pay the weight of any situation and doing doing nothing for anyone else that it's just a bit depressing. Yeah, I don't I know what you mean. I I, I I'm like you. I, I mean I only seen it once and it was well probably at the time so my memory is hazy but I remember it not having it didn't feel like there was that balance between. Uh, showing this lifestyle for its kind of um glorious excesses uh, but also showing the kind of the effects of that and it, it felt like there wasn't enough criticism of what was being shown on the screen and i think about something like goodfellas which is also a martin scorsese film and in that he uh, you see him, obviously, you see him as a kid uh, work his way up through the mob, etc. And then, towards the end, he royally screws over all his friends. He gets he he gets rich. He screws over his friends. He ends up in um, what's it called? Witness protection and that. So, and he can live a normal life. And there's him. The final shot is him standing there on the doorstep, smug, looking at the camera. And it's like the whole point is is you're meant to you're meant to feel angry and annoyed at him for what he's done to other people and that and i i felt that that worked in this it almost especially with having the real jordan belfort at the end who's obviously making thousands and thousands out of doing eighty thousand dollars per public appearance yeah and it's like it almost seemed like the final kick in the teeth it's like okay like the joke's on you now I don't know whether he's. I, I, I'm. I'm not seeing the criticism of, and and that's why I think it's become something which is, like you say, actually celebrated amongst certain people because they really genuinely do want their lifestyle and they don't see what the problem is. Uh, yeah. And that's a, a bit concerning. And I think if that's the case, then I don't think 
Scorsese and the writer, they've done, I don't think they've done a good enough job of if they are critical of this person and his lifestyle, uh, they haven't done enough good, good enough job of portraying that. No, it, I, I think that anyone who likes this film, not so much for the cinematography or the direction, who likes this film for the content and yearns for that life is someone I probably wouldn't get along with <laughs> in, in real yeah. life. It's just, and all the things they're doing, all the, all the, the constant just, just affairs and prostitution and drugs, and it just becomes, it became a bit like just a bright light after a while. Just mm. you, ironically, I just thought you're leading like a really tedious, superficial life. You're just, there's nothing of any, any value. And when the scene where he becomes sober and a kind of is, is under house arrest and stops taking drugs, he, it's just about 15 minutes of him just, really openly talking about how boring sobriety is how boring his life is and how he's just feels like he's got cabin fever in this in this house that's like the size of a small village uh, and you think oh you poor bugger well if you had a load of coke it'd be, it'd be good with it oh yeah i just didn't yeah it's like when in wall street michael douglas makes that speech about how greed is good and it was famous it's quite a famous thing and it was it was Oliver Stone being very critical of capitalism in the 80s, but then it was taken on on face value by certain capitalist individuals and stockbrokers. So uh, as being actually a, a speech which was like a like almost like a, a slogan, yeah, like a like a genuine slogan to be to be taken as a life lesson. I tell you, it's the same. It's the same reason. The feeling I got from this, watching this film for three hours, is it's it's the reason that, that I haven't watched something like Entourage because it's just a celebration of excess. And yeah. to me, what it, uh, what it felt like at the core of it, regardless of how kind of shiny and dazzly and fun it is, what it, at the core of it, it reminded me of that two minute sequence that we don't like in Jack Reacher, where it's yeah. we're supposed to be jealous of his life stretched out into a full film. <laughs> that's a long time that's three hours as well yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. all right i won't watch that again then where, okay. where is that available that was on netflix okay uh i'm gonna go back to disney plus for my next one nice we go from a soulless individual to soul the this is the big release on christmas day oh uh, yes it's the latest film from pixar it's directed by pete doctor who is known for his thoughtful animated films like Up and Inside Out. And the story focuses on this music teacher who longs to play music professionally in a band. Uh, that's his life's purpose as far as he's concerned. On the day he gets his possible big break, he dies in an accident. And he goes to a kind of purgatory. His soul goes to a purgatory and he's drawn towards the light, um, which is obviously the final moment and it will be just vanished from existence but he resists and like jumps out of the queue basically and then he finds himself in the place where souls are distributed into new human bodies i.e babies and he is he's paired up with a troubled soul who a, a young like a young woman a, this troubled soul who refuses to enter a human body because she's not found her spark yet and so they they end up back on the mortal plane. She ends up in his real life body, and he ends up in the body of his cat. Um, so it kind of 
becomes this kind of buddy comedy thing. Um, so he's trying to get his body to this gig. Um, uh, but of course, the person in his body is not him. Anyway, so and meanwhile, she's trying to find her reason to enter the, the real world. She's trying to find her spark. So it's quite a deep and intense concept. This is quite, it's quite heady. Uh, for what is ostensibly a kid's film and, and the film does look amazing like the the heightened realism of the outside world is is so detailed and then it's juxtaposed against this purgatory place that he goes which is genuinely surreal weirdly animated quite beautiful in a way um it also has a really gorgeous atmospheric synth score by trent reznor and atticus ross um david finch's go-to guys um i'm not sure how much i really enjoyed it though it's clever but i couldn't help thinking of inside out which is another pixar film which was the one where it's a journey into uh, a young girl's mind and then the emotions are kind of represented by different characters um which i thought was a bit more varied in its depiction of an abstract space and and actually it's a bit clearer in terms of um clarifying what all of these things mean within the abstract space i think it just does inside out does a better job of presenting complex profound ideas in a visually exciting and characterful way i don't think soul comes anywhere close to really marrying those two ideals uh, I, and actually i think it's a little bit dull at times so god knows what kids would make of it uh, i mean it can't be long now before pixar just make a film for adults because i mean we had that like five minute sequence in up which made adults cry um i mean inside out was pretty cerebral but this is just uh, it's for really clever kids <laughs> if anyone um what did your son think of it um he he stared at the screen and he did dribble occasionally Oh, and okay. uh and at one point it looked like he was going to vomit but it was a false alarm so oh, okay i don't know he's not quite rogery but yet um, <laughs> um yeah so it's it's clearly a film made with a lot of intelligence and indeed a bit of soul um oh. i just wish that the that weight of intelligence could have been put into a plot with a bit more vitality a bit more humor a bit more energy how it's long just, is it it seems uh, like a long film it felt long because it's quite slow and a little bit drab at times uh, <laughs> yeah i don't know it's not it doesn't feel like it would be a very rewatchable one gotta say it just doesn't have that energy to it so yeah it's not yeah not of the same quality as the likes of Inside Out, which I think is excellent. Now we come to the heart of this show. Mm. A 1976 Italian film called Mr. Scarface, a.k.a. Rulers of the City. I had an ulterior motive for watching this off the beaten track film. Yes, Jack Palance is in it. Yes, Harry Beer is in it. Yes, Al Cliver is in it. After we had um, a conversation with a, like a Zoom call with our friends uh, last week, and two people separate to each other said that they tried to get me the Al Cliver book and couldn't get hold of it. it, really, 
a really lit a fire in my heart for Al. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to watch a film with him in. So what better one to watch than Rulers of the City? This, I put this on thinking, I'm just going to laugh at this and look at Al Cliver and laugh at him. But actually, it's really good. Um, <laughs> it's, um, we were in, the introduction is um, Jack Palance. Um, he's got a big bag of money. It's filmed in slow motion for some reason. And he goes back to a, a small hovel wearing a boiler suit with his friend who they've assumed done some sort of bank heist. And then he shoots his friend in front of his son, uh, takes the money and walks out. And then the film cuts forward about 20 years. And we're introduced to a character, Tony, played by Harry Bear, who looks a little bit like the bloke from American Wolf in London. I don't, I'm not sure of that guy's name. Okay. Okay. Um, I thought you'd know it then, but you don't know. Actually, no, I don't. Um, and he is a, a, basically a debt collector for the mob run by someone called Luigi and his brother Mario and he just sort of goes around beating people up, taking their money and he wants to climb the ladder and Jack Palance is Mr. Scarface who runs sort of another part uh, another sort of part of the mafia uh, who is much more serious in another part of town uh, whereas Louis Jones like a just kind of a speakeasy gambling den sort of thing. So the film is weirdly light in tone and it's quite funny and it's so 70s like the cars it it's you know I've watched films made in Italy where they talk about dollars and it's made out there in New York or something but this like <laughs> fully embraces the fact that it's filmed in in Rome or wherever it is some right. major city. And there's a lots of like powder blue suits with flared trousers. I was in heaven. People just chain smoking rollies and sweating. I was loving it. Um, the fight. Any sequence, any hair product or? Uh, I think just a lot of bouffants and feathered uh, feathered mustache combos. I'm afraid, as far as I can see. Um, th- there's a lot about this film that's very very important. <laughs> um, there's weird gay undertones between Harry Beer and Al Cliver. Al Cliver, by the way, in this film, he his acting is better than nine years later in Endgame because he's really weirdly... He's got this weird blonde hair, this, this floppy blonde hair, and he comes across as quite feminine. And these T-shirts that are just almost too short so you can sort of see his navel. And he gets beaten up by Jack Palance at the start, Jack Palance's men. And, and Tony, the young character who's the main guy in the story just says well come home with me and they just they, they i thought oh obviously they're they're a couple but it's it's never stated they're a couple but he just mm. like starts living with him and they start bonding okay that's cool um the subtitles in this film do not match what is being said on the screen and i not once not once and, and i thought oh the subtitles from another cut where they took out all the swearing and stuff yeah but no, like, for example, there's one scene where someone's talking about how they gamble to, like, make ends meet and pay. And, and one of the other guys in the um, in the speakeasy says, his dubbed voice says, give me a give me a Honda and I'll show you how you make some fucking money. Or give me a fast Honda, I'll show you how make some fucking money. The subtitles say, I drive past old women on my bike and I steal their handbags. And you're like, okay, that's not quite it's recent. <laughs> um, and like, there's a scene where someone's getting really fiercely beaten up, and they, like, I'll be back at three o'clock for the money, and if you haven't got it, you're gonna fucking die, you piece of shit. And then the the subtitle says, "I'll be back later. Don't be late." So mm-hmm. it's kind of amusing yeah. anyway. At least it gets the point across. But <laughs> it, it it and this the end of the film uh, goes to 
a they say it's a, an old abattoir but let's call it what it is it's an industrial estate in italy isn't it and i realized we watch a lot of films modern films set on romanian industrial estates right and we have been known to <laughs> yes we've dappled but this it's like shows that you can do that and and it'd be interesting it's just really it's just a lot of people just like squealing around corners on bikes and cars just these having these epic shootouts that go on for ages and just, like no sense of geography and just this it just was oddly thrilling you know just you just think are mm. these stunts actually been done by these actors because it looks like it it looks like they're just being thrown around and hit by cars it's like no there's no safety so it's kind of it was it was fun and yeah this 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 it's a bare bones plot, but it's like 90 minutes of quite lighthearted gangster fun. And Al Cliver's in it. So, film of the week. And he's. <laughs> and Al Cliver's not terrible. That's amazing. No, he is. There's, as this, the story doesn't make sense. The kid, the, fa- the person, I'm not going to spoil it, but the person who turns out to be the son from the start has literally got a massively different hair colour, build, and eye colour. So, it's like, mm. that's, not, that's not you when you're older. But yeah, Al Cliver is. I think in this room he's meant to be a bit of a blank slate, but at the start he just gets beaten up and he just seems like some sort of stupid thug. And then halfway through the film his character totally changes and he just masterminds this plot against Jack Palance. And you think, mm, it seems like you're making it up really to go along. But um, no, it's good fun. Good. That is bound to be on Prime, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and you just type Al Cliver into Prime? Yeah, it was pretty slim pickings. Oh, I can't lie to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was either that or Endgame again. Yes. Um, right then. Well, let's this this start this this Odyssey. I know, I know what's starting. <laughs> All the Rocky films are on Prime at the moment, so I think it, up to Creed. I don't think Creed Two's on there. Anyway, is this, obviously last week it was Star Wars. It's Rocky this time. Is this a, is this a theme? Is this what you do now? Um, no, I, I have been looking out for other series, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose I could do Indiana Jones, but then I refuse to watch the fourth one. So it would just be re- reviewing the original trilogy. Don't know. We'll see. And I gave up on Resident Evil. And Police Academy. <laughs> I never really gave Police Academy a chance. Um, right. Rocky, uh, which was... Made in 1976, and it was written by Sylvester Stallone and directed by John G. Avildsen. He went on to direct the Karate Kid films. I think he directed one of the sequels as well to Rocky. Anyway, uh, for a start, I like, I love films which depict the parlous state of U.S. cities in the 1970s. Um, so this is a good one because it starts out on the kind of mean streets of Philadelphia. And you've got these really long, gorgeous tracking shots, which capture the completely rundown environment perfectly. Um, so it's kind of got that, you know, taxi driver feel of really capturing Nightmare City. Anyway, so Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone, he is kind of a lonelyish guy um, walking around the city. He's a, he he works as a basically he's a, he's a bruiser for a local gangster really um just getting money off people but he's clearly a decent enough guy he's uh I just realized how many similarities there are between this and rulers of the city 1976 yeah. gangsters cities, it's weird, yeah. isn't it? 
so many connections to these films. Um, yeah, and he is also he's he's pretty much in love with a woman who works at a local pet store called Adrian. And it, while he's kind of wandering around his local community, wandering into the uh, boxing uh, club where he hangs out, um, in the background you see on the TVs, this Apollo Creed is on the TV, the world champion boxer, the master of disaster, played by Carl Weathers, naturally. And, and Rocky notices him and he admires... Apollo Creed, while other people talk talk him down in pretty racist terms a lot of the time, and yeah, so uh, it turns out that Apollo Creed's opponent um, is out with an injury, and he needs a contender within the next five weeks. So Apollo Creed goes lo- looking for a novelty local Philadelphia fighter. Um, he's quite calculating; it's all about the image. Uh, it's quite a convoluted idea, really, the idea that he would seek out this. Um, this young fighter in the form of Rocky, but there you go. There it is. And um, yeah, so it's about uh, Rocky training for this fight, which Apollo assumes is going to be a walkover. Um, meanwhile, Rocky is trying to romance uh, his love, Adrian. And it's quite sweet there because they're kind of interactions because she's like painfully shy and he, Rocky, he talks a lot Um but he's not the sharpest tool in the in the box. So yeah, he um, they they quite it's quite well observed all that stuff uh, with their relationship, and it's quite sweet without being sentimental. Um, so yeah, the manager at the training facility wants to train Rocky, um, but he also sees an opportunity for himself. That is Mickey, who is played by the late, I assume, Burgess Meredith. I'm guessing he must be mm. dead by now. Oh, yes, 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 yes. There's also Paulie, who's um, played by Burt Young, who is uh, the brother of Adrian. And he's a bit of a schlub. He's kind of useless. And his relationship with Rocky is indeed Rocky. Um, Burt Young, by the way, I, I just he's always looked like he's in his mid 50s. And yet he was he is in all of the films, including the one in 2006. He's still going. He wasn't even 80 by then. It's like, how could you look so old in 1976? But he was in cigarettes, his Rupert, cigarettes. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, this it's really the original film is really about the perspective of this unacademic man living in a poverty, really. And and when he and when he talks about sort of Apollo Creed being in a different class, he's not just talking about different class of like fighter. He's really talking about different class in terms of expectations from life, really. Um, I mean, how can Rocky go from punching carcasses in a meat locker to, you know, fighting the world champion? It's not meant to be this way. Both <sighs> fighters know this. Um, and it it's virtually all from Rocky's perspective. It doesn't get bogged down in the technicalities and the marketing of the big fight. So we do share in Rocky's sense of being overwhelmed by the occasion. And, yeah, I think the final fight, and it really there is only only that one fight in the whole film, the final fight, it, it lacks some of the visceral feel of later boxing movies and even the sequels, but it definitely tells a story and it is very dramatic. And, and it ends quite unusually in terms of who might be the winner. And yeah, it's a good film. The original rock is, it's really well paced, convincingly grimy, uh, depiction of life at the bottom, looking out towards the top characters are well drawn. Uh, 
but yeah, it's remembered for its big moments like the final fight and running up the steps, um, you know, and punching the air. But it's effective for its tiny moments of human drama more than anything. It's just really well observed. And yeah, perhaps we could have got to know Adrian more, but it's all about Rocky, really, isn't it? So, yes. My, my lasting memory of the first Rocky film was seeing him going constantly going for runs in wet weather, wearing Converse trainers, and knowing, having worn them myself, he'd be dead within seconds. Slip, no grip, dead. So that was uh, that was stretching my disbelief. All of the weather is awful because it's set around winter time as well. It's just constantly drizzling, or just free, you can just see their breath constantly. He wears about forty layers to go out for a run. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, moving on. Have you finished? Sorry. Yes. Yes. I'm going to move on to uh, something slightly different. This is the Poison Rose, aka an eye for an eye, not that one. This is a film starring John Travolta as Carson Phillips. This is a film released in 2019, by the way. Um, his wig. Wow. Uh, yeah, Carson Phillips, who's a private investigator from a small town called Galveston in Texas, who lives in LA, he gets involved with the wrong sort of people and get takes a case back in Galveston, even though he doesn't want to go there, just to sort of get out of town for a while until the heat dies down, uh, where he reconnects with some old friends, played by Morgan Freeman, Peter Stamari, good, and Robert Patrick, who was the sheriff, uh, you know, sheriff, the doc, the um, the head of gambling and the, the legal gambling and... Um, Peter Samari is kind of an old hippie friend there. And it's basically just a typical noir, you know, it is his case as simple as it is with a femme fatale thrown in. Boom, boom, boom. Doesn't matter what the story is, right? <laughs> Let's just cut to the chase. Um, here's hair in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he had hair implants. It, no, it, he wears syrups. So he's got... Oh. Uh, he's... It's like a... Well, he described it apparently... In an interview, someone brought up his wig in this film, and he said, "I I wanted, I wanted it to be like a frightened lion." Uh, I'm not sure if he captured that with a blonde highlighted wig swept back, but uh, <laughs> but there we go. He looks good. John Travolta is obviously like in his mid sixties, and he looks good. But this film, I was watching it, and it was just really dirty blues sort of slide guitar, <laughs> and. I was getting a bit hips deep. It was just John Travolta smoking loads of fags and just driving around. And then I realized this film really is John Travolta pulling up somewhere in his massive, because it's set in the 70s with this massive 70s car, smoking some fags, going in, having like a one-sided conversation. And then it'll cut and he's just driving around somewhere else. And it's just him going to and from his car, smoking cigarettes. And I thought there's probably about 20, 25 of these scenes in this film. Famke Janssen is in this film, and she has had work Clive done, let me tell you. She she walked in, I thought, is that Famke Janssen? Oh yeah, it is. And when she was straight onto the camera, I thought, yes, that's Famke Janssen. When she turned to the side, however, I thought, oh no, that's what's left of Famke Janssen. Because it's just got this like, puffy eyebrows and these like really high, weird alien cheeks, and you think, look, you're a beautiful woman, stop. Why, why yeah. do these people do these things? The damage is done. And also, it was a bit heartbreaking. I actually paused this film when Brendan Fraser came on screen. Because oh I thought, that cannot be Brendan Fraser. It and is. he's got this, like... Yeah, he is. He just looks very, very ill. It was actually, like, a bit mm. upsetting. Because mm -hmm. um, he was so... He had such a, like, a wholesome appearance, didn't he? Like, yeah. he was so... He's always been, like, 
you know, it's not like Bert Young and, and Rocky expect him to look like a <laughs> bucket of smashed crabs. But this, but Brendan Fraser, Fraser was so, you know, so healthy looking, wasn't he? So yeah. full of life. It was really like a bit sad because he now just looks like his own granddad. <laughs> Marry me. And he, <laughs> he, he, when he's talking to, he is 52 and John Travolta 66. Um, and he looks older than John Travolta in this film. Yeah. And probably John Travol- Liam Neeson, who's 66 or whatever. Yeah, 69. So I, I love looking at Peter Stamari, and I especially love looking at Peter Stamari when he's playing live acoustic guitar music and singing the song. I, I, I could have listened to an album of that gold. Um, Morgan Freeman's just basically doing his Morgan Freeman thing. Ella Blue Travolta is in this, his daughter, who's 20, and she cannot act. She, I don't know if she's actually an actress or this is an introducing credit or whatever, but she plays um, John Travolta's real life daughter in the film, a uh, daughter in the film. And there's just two or three scenes where they're just bonding in a really unrealistic way because he mm. finds out she's his daughter and they're instantly just like really close and loving. And I thought, what? If I was 20 years old and I found out that like effectively this burned out bourbon swilling has been chain smoker was my dad, I wouldn't think, oh, amazing. Oh, we're <laughs> wicked. Um, you just, you'd be like, oh, okay. And then not straight away. They're over there laughing and in love. She doesn't even ask him about the wig. No, she doesn't say, oh, yeah, thanks for bringing me the donuts and the coffee. What is on your head? What is that? Um, what's it is, is it a hat? Is it, is it flammable? Is it, is it a <laughs> show? Like you look like a startled lion. <laughs> the Bristol Zoo. Um, yeah, so it's it's a pretty... I will say, right, this film got completely slaughtered. And whilst it's not good by any stretch of the imagination, you can kind of see every plot point coming. I, I was thinking this because I watched um, John Travolta most recently in The Fan, not that one, from last year. Mm. We play some with mental health problems. And is that the uh, Fred Durst one? Yes, yes, it is, Rupert. Thanks for bringing it up. And again, that got slaughtered, but I, I didn't mind. It was fine. And I realized that if you compare John Travolta to someone, say, like Bruce Willis, who's a similar mm. age, right? At least John Travolta is starring in films and putting effort in, like putting on act. He doesn't just like sleepwalk onto the set and do like five minute cameos. And I thought, yeah, yeah. And I thought whether the films are good or bad, they're different, and you know, they're not boring. They're Mm. just they might not be good, but and I thought, no, actually, this is quite cool. I'm going to stick with John. I think I'm going to stick with Mr. Travolta through his uh, latter years. (laughs) Good of you to show that loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean now. Um, what so what's that called, and where where can we see it? It was called the Poison Rose in America, but it was released internationally as Eye for an Eye, not that one in brackets, and that was on Netflix. Okay, um, right then, Rocky Two. Um, speaking of big cats, here's, here's the link with this one. There's a scene in this film where they go to a zoo. And they're hanging around next to a tiger pen. Oh, don't, don't. I'm not joking. Like, there is a waist-high fence with nothing on top of it. Just a waist-high fence separating them from this enormous creature. I don't know what's going on there. Anyway. I, I thought you were going to say that they lock eyes and either the tiger kicks in or something. Ooh, that's a good point, actually. I can't remember when either. don't think either tiger even comes in. I think it doesn't come in until the next one. Anyway. <laughs> This one is this one's written and directed by Sylvester Stallone um, in 1979. Now um, it continues directly from the previous film with Rocky healing in hospital. 
Apollo Creed is calling for a rematch. Uh, Rocky gets married to Adrian. They go on a spending spree because they've got a bit of cash. Uh, he's not going to fight anymore. He's just going to do commercials for income. Um, and so he's just spraying cash all over the place. But it's okay because he can do commercials. You can see where this is going. Um, there's something quite tragic about watching him so happy and hopeful, knowing it's going to go wrong. Um, so, yeah, he, it turns out he can't act in these commercials. So he can't rely on that. Money, then, is his incentive to get back in the ring. Meanwhile, Apollo Creed is getting hate mail because people think the fight was a fake in the first film. So pride is Apollo's incentive. Uh, so this is really about two two men, two fighters, dealing with two different types of shame, really. Um, it's not quite... I mean, visually, uh, it's not quite as interesting as the original. It's a bit more static. I mean, Sylvester Stallone, I guess, he, would, he was young starting out. Um but there is more Burgess Meredith this time around. So you can, <laughs> Burgess Meredith, he's just such a growl. He's just constantly growling things, just saying these bizarre things to him. And he's like, come on, come on. You're running around like a little girl and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and he'll say things like, he's going to kick your face in pieces. What, what does that even mean? He um, was the one who should have been cast in that film I watched called The Maddening, was it? With Burt Reynolds constantly seeing his father in a wheelchair shouting him. And it's just basically Burt Reynolds smoking cigars, looking up into like a cornfield. And then there's an old grizzled man in a wheelchair going, Get your fucking kid in the back! <laughs> and he's like, hi, Dad. So, yeah, that, that should have been Burgess Meredith, really. Yeah. You're a greasy Italian tank, he says. <laughs> what is that? What does that mean? Um, sounds like something that uh, he would say during sex with him. <laughs> um, so the script is a little bit more play- playful, but it is basically a retread of the first film. Um, even some of the lines are repeated, like "eat lightning, li- eat lightning, and crap thunder." Um, the pacing and structure is the same. There's no real boxing in it until the end. There's lots of character building, big old training montage, uh, and then twenty minutes for the finale. Um, oh yeah, but it, and in the final fight, they've added extra sound effects this time. So, like, because it, it didn't quite have the impact in the first one, so they, they've added these ridiculous sound effects. So when they punch each other, it sounds like a carpenter building a dining table. It's ridiculous. Um, so all that's happening really in this film is that different characters are making the arguments for why it is or isn't a good idea to fight Apollo. So it's essentially the same film, which is just if roles just switched around it's also more drippy and sentimental than the first film um and of course he is fighting the same opponent which is apollo creed which removes any sense of possible novelty because we've literally seen it all before um and there aren't even any other opponents along the way um i i think they start to correct that with the next films to be fair having a lot more actual boxing in it and a lot more montages but yeah i'd say the second one is really just Rocky Two is filler. It develops the sort of relationship between uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky, but then you could have just had the first one do that. Uh, yes, their rivals got it. Rocky's here in this one. Obviously, it's ninety-seven. Is it? Is it like rich with hair products? Um, like, is it oh. mousse or gel or brill cream? Anything in there? No, it's it's just a massive bouffant swell of hair just swept back, really. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Um, 
Well, I'll move on then to 2017's The Hitman's Bodyguard with Ryan Reynolds, Samuel Jackson, Gary Oldman, and Salma Hayek. Now, I... T- the I cast in these films. I mean, these are big names. Yeah. I yeah. actually, i got to say, I actually didn't mind this film because I was okay. in the mood for kind of throwaway popcorn action. Um, so... I turned this film on, and, and the plot is oh, the, really quickly. The plot is that Ryan Reynolds is a, a, like a really good bodyguard who's a, been a little bit disgraced because someone got killed. Samuel Jackson is a world class hitman, and they've got to work together to get to Interpol court for so Samuel Jackson can give a speech and get Gary Oldman. Basically, boom, done. Right. Oh, so I remember this now. I remember now. I remember it from your description. Now I remember the trailer, and it's like right, it's all coming together. I put them on and I was lying in bed and I was probably pouring myself a drink and I looked up and it was just show it was like you know just music and it just the the, the actors names flashing up Ryan Reynolds Samuel Jackson and then Gary Oldman came up and I turned to Faye and said if Gary Oldman is putting on a Russian accent I'm going to turn this off and then within as I finished the words it zoomed in on a village and Gary Oldman bursts in with a goatee and horn-rimmed glasses. And I thought, oh, of course he is. Of course he's doing a fucking Russian accent. I didn't turn it off. I, I stuck with it. I, he just he needs to stop playing these men who basically yeah. spend films, sat down, having like really light lunches, talking to people on the telephone. He's turning into Steven Seagal. Although the lunch is somewhat heavier in the Steven Seagal's film. Um, Ironically, even though Steven Seagal lives in Russia, he probably wouldn't actually be able to put on a Russian accent. Oh, well, you can you can probably snore with a Russian accent, can't you? It, it would be like... Yet, 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 yet. Russian snoring. Probably my favourite drone band. Um, so, see, so yeah, this kicks off. And what I did like about this film, there's no, I'm not going to talk about the plot, there's no point. It's effectively a buddy comedy film, and I do like those. And so it's a hard 15, this film. So it's it's like it's very bloody. Like you say, when anyone gets shot, there's just a big spray of CG blood. Uh, there's a lot of bad language, most of it coming from Samuel L. Jackson. And he is just, I just like looking at him and just listening to him swear. And mm-hmm. the banter is good. And as far as I'm concerned, if the banter is good, yeah, and I'm 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 laughing at the film. Like I don't care about anything else, and that's very much this. What happened here was, I realised Ryan Reynolds is just Ryan Reynolds in every film he's in. Yes, because I didn't really see a Ryan Reynolds film. I don't think up until Deadpool, and then I watched Deadpool, and I thought, oh, that's quite cool. It's quite self-referential, and he's like quippy. And then I, it's like every other film I've seen him in since then, he's just that. Mm. So. Okay, um, but I don't. I don't mind doing that. Uh, the this film as well. It. Uh, I thought that Samuel Jackson was going to be like a real bastard uh, because he just says he's killed over two hundred and fifty people, and then halfway through, when they obviously start to get over the differences in Bond, they just throw in that. Oh, he only kills bad people, though. Mm. So, oh, okay. Then I. Oh, so I can like him now. Because yeah, that's so, how Hitman work. Yes, that's exactly how it works, isn't it? So they, they, they go to these like underground Russian like nightclubs where they're like hacking up bodies and doing like organ theft. And they say, We want you to kill this man. And then he says, Oh, is he being naughty or is he a nice man? <laughs> that's exactly how being a hitman works. And then he looks up and the guy's falling asleep and it's <laughs> Um Yeah, it's fun. 
if they did not get a sequel, I'd watch it. Um, I just, I think after watching The Nice Guys, I was up for watching another buddy comedy, and this yeah. was exactly what I wanted at the time. Yeah. I know what you mean, like, with a buddy comedy, is if the banter's good, then everything else doesn't really matter. Like, I'm pretty sure I've never followed the plot of, like, a buddy movie ever, because it's just about, it's just about the interaction, which I suppose makes sense. I mean, that's what you're watching it for. But yeah, yeah if that works, everything else falls into place. It's fine. Um, so, uh, where's that available? Netflix. Yes, it sounds like a Netflix one, doesn't it? Um, Rocky Three. Uh, Rocky Three. How did you say that then? You sound like you were doing a bingo call. <laughs> Number three, Rocky Three. Um, <laughs> so, All Sylvester the Sloan, Rocky Four. <laughs> Sylvester Sloan writes and directs again. This is the one where I, the Tiger, is introduced, um, and Rocky finally gets a different opponent. Mr. T, a.k.a. Clubber Lang. Um, and he's a genuinely quite scary opponent. He's buff, Mr. T. Um, opens with Rocky winning a bunch of matches. So we actually get some other boxing. So that's good. He makes a bunch of money. Hauls himself out in TV advertising like a good old Reaganite American. Um, he even he fights Hulk Hogan at one point in this film. Hulk Hogan calling himself Thunderlips for some reason. Um <laughs> in a charity fight and it's a it's a comedy fight um and this is really the moment when it it, that really rocky has shifted from quite gritty urban drama into something a little bit um parodic maybe but anyway so but really it does tell it does tell a story because it is saying actually rocky the character has become a parody of himself with all the merchandising and the conventions and that. Um, so anyway, Rocky's about to retire again when Mr. T comes along and challenges him, calls him a pussy. Burgess Meredith, Mickey, says Mr. T's a killer. Um, but then he was saying the same about Carl Withers, to be fair. But there you go. Um, the drama seems a little bit forced this time around. There's some pretty nonsensical character moves. For example, yeah, so... Adrian, his his wife now, um, is it his wife yet? I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, I think they got married in the last one. So anyway, she she's seen Rocky get the absolute beating of his life, um, and 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 so why does she why does she want him to get back in the ring when she's seen him at his impoverished worst? He's now got money, doesn't need to fight, and yet she's now saying, "I'll oh, get back in the ring." With this killer, it's weird. Maybe so, it's just having him around the house. Like if they're trying to bring in some family drama, you know, like when people retire and they don't do themselves, and people, oh, get a bloody, get another job. Look, it's like, get back get and another, get kicked to death. Go on, get, you, get, you yeah. get your face ripped off by Mr. T. Um, <laughs> so he actually gets to fight with Mr. T within the first forty minutes, um, but he's complacent. I think we know where this is going. So the film. It's really a. It, it's the function of having him get shit kicked off by Mr. T halfway through is because the film needs to put Rocky back in his rags so he can fight for riches again. Basically, the theme of this one really is self doubt because he, after that, he obviously he's going to go for a rematch, but he doesn't believe in himself at all. Um, 
it's quicker moving than the previous installments, much more melodramatic. It's enjoyable in a silly way. Um, they switch it up a bit. They relocate to California. And the idea of bringing Apollo Creed in as a trainer is kind of genius because it it does help to make up for watching the same film twice, essentially, because now Apollo Creed and him get to have a bromance. They literally get to roll around in the LA in, surf in together. Sand, so, yeah. Um, this is quite an effective death scene of a certain character, and we get to see some of the acting quality that got Sylvester Stallone an, act, uh, an Oscar nomination for the first film. So that's cool. The final fight is pretty absurd. Uh, in the sound effects now, they've gone from carpentry to... To people just firing shotguns yeah, in a tunnel. Yeah, actual ordnance at this point. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm... And I'm no boxing expert, but in terms of tactics in the final fight, the idea of a fighter deliberately taking punches to tire his opponent out seems fanciful. But, you know, there it is. Um, yeah, so this is really, unlike the first two, this is very much a boxing film first and a character drama second. And it's it's perfectly rewatchable, I think. Perhaps... It's somewhere between the uh, the more grounded reality of the first two films and the ridiculousness of Rocky Four. So perhaps it's a little bit overshadowed by Rocky Four, but we'll talk about that next. Is it Rocky Three where there's a scene where he's getting in the ring and he slips, and kicks himself in the face? <laughs> I don't, no, don't recall that specific scene. No, no. All right. All right. Uh, and then Burgess Meredith shouts, The first one of training Rocky, don't get yourself in the face. <laughs> and there's another scene where, where he's like trying to put his glove on, his hand slips, he punches himself in the face. It's basically just a slapstick comedy. Yeah. And then he has a dream sequence of Burgess Meredith going, Second, second, Bruno and Rocky, don't punch yourself in the face. Yeah, there's no actual, <laughs> there's no actual opponent in this. It's just him trying to survive, putting on some clothes. <laughs> and then the second fight, then when he gets in with Mr. T again, and he gets in the ring, and he slips, and his foot comes up, and it just like, like just as it comes into his face, and his eyes cross, he just stops it in time, and then he looks up at the crowd, and everyone goes ah, and then it cuts to like a dreamy Burgess Meredith, and like speech bubbles, kind of like like who are you, uh, except maybe who are you, you can get yourself in the face. Uh. Yeah, I do like that scene. Brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, I watched Don't Blink with Brian Austin Green and Mina Savari. Uh, <laughs> 2014. I spent a good half hour of this film scrolling through IMDb, assuming that they'd spelt Brian Austin Green wrong. when, And they should have written Jonathan Reese Myers. But uh, I, I'm the one in the wrong, apparently. So this Jonathan Rhys-Myers cannot act, by the way. No, I know this, this is because well, I did actually watch. Um, sorry to interrupt, but it, no, I did actually not. watch Bend It Like Beckham, uh, where he plays an Irish um, football trainer. He can't act. He just cannot act, and, and it took people a while to realize this. Anyway, go on. 
No, and he cannot act. Like I said, I watched two or three of his films in the last year, and it's just, every one of them is just bad. But Brian Austin Green kind of looks like a slightly more filled-out version of them, but Brian Austin Green weirdly can act to an extent. So this film is about ten friends, a group of ten friends, going to this alpine cabin just to have a bit of a party. Um, and what happens is they go there, they get there, and the, everyone has disappeared leaving like half-eaten meals and they slowly realize that actually in this cabin there's no there's no birds there's no wildlife there's no insects there's no fish there's no people and it's like people are literally just disappearing and the first person to disappear even though she's on the cover as a main star is Mina Suvari after 10 minutes and before she disappears because no one's looking at her you can see her looking off camera and miming writing a check so that's that done so what happens what happens with this what happens with this film right is the whole the whole premise is known to us the audience within nanoseconds if no one is looking at you you disappear that is it the the people in the film don't realize this for an hour and 20 minutes so what there's it's very cheap so what happens is they all turn up this mishmash of 10 people supposedly close friends but n- most of whom don't seem to know each other and have active reasons not to have the other person there because they're an ex, but it's never really explained. I think it's never explained because it's badly written and badly directed by Travis Oates, and he just wants an excuse for people to bicker. So mm. it's like nothing's ever really explained. You think why are you all why are you all on this trip if none of you really get on? Why would why would you turn up? <laughs> Brian Austin Green uh, is there's a scene in this where he is talking to someone and he breaks down in tears because Mina Savari, his girlfriend, has disappeared, and he reveals that she was pregnant and he was going to propose to her, which would have had more emotional impact if five minutes after Mina Savari disappeared, he wasn't just shagging his ex straight away who was there. So you're like, well, you filmed this <laughs> thing, didn't you? Um, People just lose their minds for no reason, just start firing guns and just causing trouble because it's effectively a dwindling amount of people in a single room just staring at each other in the face so they they don't disappear. Um, And the ending is a massive, massive cop-out because the whole film is like 80 minutes, 90 minutes, whatever, of Mm. why is this happening? And then the end is just a huge cop-out and writes itself off as a kind of, what do you think it means? Well, I think it means this is a bad film that I'm not going to watch ever again, and I'm going to tell people to not watch what that means. Um, They all all act like they're in their early 20s, and all all the actors are in their mid to late 40s. One person in this film, I'll have to send you a picture on WhatsApp. he is an actor I recognize from other things, and he's got this ridiculous. He obviously got cast in this film, and he was in his mid fifties, uh, mid forties, and they said, "Right, you're gonna have to be 20. So he just dyed his hair like feathered blonde, side parting, and just like had a really close shave. And mm. you're like, you're you're clearly nearly fifty, acting like a horny twenty year old. It's quite embarrassing. Jesus, there's no reason to watch this film unless you want to see a cameo by Robert Picardo from Star Trek, really. Brian Austin Green looks a bit like Luke Evans as well. <laughs> I am going to send you a picture. I forgot the name of the guy who um, who stars in this, and he just looks very weird. But yeah, it's a it's a low budget, I say, sci-fi horror written by uh, and directed by Travis Oates. I have no interest in watching any of his other stuff because if I'm going to watch a, a cheap horror or even like a cheap sci-fi film where it's like a little, you know, kind of effectively a single room story with really bad continuity. A nonsensical, mm. nonsensical 
actions in it. I at least want it to hold together. It's something that makes sense, like a little snapshot. But when it doesn't even do that, there's literally nothing to keep you there. So that's called Don't Blink, is it? Yes, don't it's probably watch, good don't, the other don't watch. Don't watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Prime? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Rocky Four <laughs> is written and directed by Sylvester Stallone. Slap bang in the middle of the eighties, um, in the heart of Reagan's Cold War America. It's East versus West, U.S. versus Russia, Sly versus Dolph. <laughs> um, it's Dolph Lundgren's Buzzcut versus Buffon. Yeah. I think apparently Dolph Lundgren was in A View to a Kill, but I guess it was just a cameo. He's, but this is his full debut. It is full on 80s styling in this movie, like remarkably so. Like Rocky has two Lamborghinis, two Lambos. He wears woolen suits. He listens to synth pop. And he has a robot as well. He has a robot. Um, and of course... There is the cutting-edge computer technology employed by Dolph Lundgren's, uh, Ivan Drago's team. And the Robert Tepper's no easy way out. There's actually some decent synth music on the score, but my God, whew, there's some, some pop hits here as well. Um, so Ivan Drago is this Russian youngster who has got a ridiculously powerful punch, so he's just a machine. Now... Apollo Creed uh, wants to step in the ring with him. Um, not quite clear why, really. I think it's because there's this whole thing about Apollo Creed being a patriot. He wears, like, um, the stars and stripes on his shorts and stuff, and he doesn't like this Russian upstart coming along. Um, anyway, it's a plot device to give Rocky a taste for revenge. Um, even Drago is basically a kid, really. He's a tool weaponized by his hyper technical russian team he's pretty overwhelmed by the razzle dazzle of boxing theater but um he is super powerful um rocky rises to the challenge he heads to russia to train obviously he grows a beard which i think may be possibly fake um i don't know whether this is i know that sylvester sloan had an injury in childbirth didn't he so um Hence his kind of drool. I don't know whether that affected his ability to grow a beard, but I'm sure this one's fake. Anyway, no, no, because no, he is he has got a beard now in real life. Right. Okay. So no. Okay. So it is literally just drawn on. Okay. So he goes back to nature, basically training in a shack. Um, you know, using old barrels as weights and stuff. In a um, shack, well, listening to the B52s "Love Shack" on repeat as his training montage music. Yeah, listening to. Listen to 90s Liverpudlian rock band Shaq while he's doing it. Um, even though this is made in 85. Um, so he, 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 yeah. So the theme of this one is really humility. So he, you have the overconfidence of Apollo Creed and then Rocky goes back to basics. And there's this repeated thing where he, when people are kind of bigging him up, Rocky will say to them, I'll try. So it's never about like, I'm going to beat the hell out of this guy. It's like, I'll try. So there are montages in this film. It is basically a series of montages with 80s pop rock punctuated by occasional dialogue. It's so far from the original film and that 
kind of raw grounded style it's it's pure 80s pop video stuff which is fine um one of the problems with this uh there are very few problems obviously because it's amazing but one problem with it is there's no real replacement for um mickey um versus meredith or apollo creed so there isn't really a trainer i mean there's he's got this one mentor who's fine but there's no conflict there because the guy's just like oh you're quite a nice guy he's got a so, robot hasn't he what does he need him? he doesn't need anything well the robot got... isn't even his he gives it to paulie adrian's uh brother it's because paulie's like, he's just lonely and so he needs like female company so he gives him this enormous six-foot robot obviously to flirt with him it's bizarre <sighs> who was it who told us that there's some sort of director's cut where they cut out the robot and probably sexy dave i guess this is insider knowledge um yeah so by this point the films the rocky films are getting simpler and simpler really and that's okay because this is the most purely fun entry in the series and it it ends with a ridiculous preposterously preachy message about healing u.s soviet relations where uh, like he makes this really clumsy speech and everyone just gets on their feet you know americans and russians alike to clap them and say oh we never really thought about it that way if only we'd had rocky around none of this would have happened we wouldn't have had any of this like international tension cold war i think um international political relations between warring superpowers is a bit more involved than just saying oh come on come on guys yeah so if only they could get in the ring Funny Reagan and Gorbachev got in the ring. Yeah, so yeah, there was actually um, Gorbachev did get in the ring. There was um, it was two Russian celebrities. I obviously don't know their names, and Gorbachev was there apparently to sort of it was like a, it was an exhibition fight. And as he got in the ring, he slipped and kicked himself in the face. <laughs> Unbelievable! Just, Unbelievable. <laughs> just been watching Rocky Three in the changing room before him. Um, so, um, so yeah, Rocky I, Four, best film ever made. <laughs> film of the year already, first episode of January, uh, even though it's not from 2020. I watched <clears throat> this is a film that I watched, I, I saw was being made a little while ago and thought, oh, I'll have to give that a goosey because it's Russell Crowe. It is Unhinged, released this year on Netflix. Um, I think this is one that wasn't in cinemas and then it got released to Netflix, I think. Or no, actually, looking at this, no, it was it was a first wild release uh, due to COVID nineteen, so it wasn't cinemas. Um, this film is quite odd. Um, have you heard about this film, by the way, Unhinged? Um, I've heard the name. <clears throat> right. It it's it stars Russell Crowe, and let me get her name right. Wait, I think it's Karen Pistorius. Yeah, Karen Pistorius is um, New Zealand. So it's two New Zealanders, effectively, in the main roles. He is, you see Russell Crowe at the start, and he is going into, taking loads of pills, and in this sort of big van, he gets in, breaks into a house, and kills his ex-wife and her partner, sets the house on fire and drives off, and it, we cut to Karen Pistorius, no relation to Yako Pistorius, unfortunately, um, who, it's spelt differently, in a different country, um, who is a, a young I think she's a young lawyer struggling with um, just separated from her partner, got a young son, and she's got her brother and his partner living with her. And um, she loses her biggest client, and she's having a really bad morning. And they, she pulls up behind Russell Crowe unknowingly that he's wanted by the police for this double murder. 
And a bit of road rage, he says, you can apologize. She says no. And then he just goes off on one. And it's basically a chase sequence for 90 minutes around the city. Mm. This is a film that I've seen many times. These kind of films where, you know, someone is just chasing someone else. What's interesting, one of the few really interesting things about this film is, unlike stuff like Duel or, the, or you know, not so much The Hitcher, but films where there's a faceless vehicle mm. driver, we're fully aware of who it is. And <laughs> Russell Crowe in this film, he is bloody fuming, Rupert. He has had it up to here, let me tell you. <laughs> it's really weird, because I read that he put on lots of weight for this film, and he really didn't need to. He He's kind of almost John Goodman in size, or at least it's filmed that way. Mm. And he's obviously, he's really, he's made it really kind of big and just lumpy and schlubby and threatening. And yet, it's like you could have just not, it doesn't need that because bizarrely, it's a really basic 90 minute thriller. And I was quite surprised mm. to see Russell Crowe in it because there's really no depth beyond mm. the fact that he is just after her because he's a little bit unhinged. Um, I also come to my own personal problem with Karen Pistorius because she has got a son in this film called, I think he's played by Austin P. McKenzie. No. Is he? Is he? Hang on, let me just check. I'm saying the right thing. No, it's not him. She's got a son in this film, played by Gabriel Bateman, who's 16. Karen Pistorius is 30, but she looks about 22. And it was the exact same thing I had with Lily Collins, where mm. I, I spent the entire film thinking, he looks more like your brother than your son. You look barely older than him. And, and it's just a problem I've got in general with these things. Um, it's fun, but not as fun as say something like. The call with Halle Berry, not that one. Yeah. Where it's it's or a breakdown more, with Kurt Russell. Yeah, which is the the best example of this genre, really. Mm. Um, that sequence where he's outside and his wife goes missing is good. When he's when the panic sets in, it's a good I scene. That is. But th- this is such a direct film, and when it ended, I think it's like eighty minutes long. Um, when it ended, I was like, oh, I, I was waiting for there to be an, another layer thrown in at some point. Yeah. But it's literally him using a phone, going around tracking people down, and then just killing them. And it's quite visceral in in the the, the violent scenes. It's not shy. It also stars um, a guy who I assumed was Larry Drake's son, um, but it's not. And I I think this every time I see him in a film. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's it's bizarre because it's right up my street. It's a re- it's a really like no frills like mm. ninety minute thriller that could have been released in any decade. But it was like, what what's why did Russell Crowe sign up for this? Yeah, it's not bad. It's just really direct. Um, yeah, I don't think I've put what. It's, why did he put on all the weight? What was that really? I don't know. I, I guess he's. I mean, he's to, pretty. Know. He's pretty big these days, anyway. Ironically, um, John Goodman, who you mentioned earlier, has lost a load of weight. So, yeah, that's what place? Maybe, Maybe just lent just, it to Russell Crowe. I think. Yeah, I think he <laughs> like just an enormous cost to be back. Yeah, he he sucked out all of his fat through like through an enema, and then took it over Russell Crowe's house and said, "Do you want to drink this?" <laughs> and uh, Russell Crowe said, "Not really." Yeah, and then John Goodman <laughs> said, "Too late, I've made up my mind." Um, yeah, it's just really weird that he would he would go through the effort. I mean, I assume he's put on weight for this because I know he's put on weight and lost weight for roles before. But yeah, yeah it it really does not just to... be a fat man. Well, he just just thought, oh, do you know what? I, I did actually thinking about it. I was reading the National Enquirer the other day, and this says he's moved above a Greg's. Uh right. So that could be it. Um, Rocky Five on Prime, obviously. This was made in 1990, so five years after Rocky Four. 
Uh, Avildsen from the original returns to direct this one is set actually straight after the even Drago fight in four and Rocky is traumatized. He's, he's got brain damage. Perhaps he's broken inside and all of his money as in, as in straight after or yes. All right. Um, all his money has basically been stolen by his accountant. Um, thanks to poorly being useless as always. Oh, All of dodgy, dodgy accounting. This could be a Star Wars film. <laughs> All his riches are sold. It's a stupid way, basically, of putting Rocky back in rags again. So, of course, he has to fight. Um, the doctors say don't do it, but he has to. He's He sells everything. He sells his house and everything. And he, and he feels like he has to fight. In a slight twist, um, uh this promoter is trying to get Rocky back in the ring to fight this kid called Union Kane. Um, but anyway, um, meanwhile, Rocky's son has to go to school in a rough neighborhood. He's not used to this stuff. He gets bullied. He wants to be taught boxing. Meanwhile, Rocky meets this kid called Tommy Gunn with an outrageous mullet. And Rocky decides to manage him so that um, so that he can be the one to fight this Union Kane guy. So basically... He meets this kid, this rough kid with a mullet on the street and instantly that night invites him back to their place. And then after dinner, turfs his own son out of his house um, so that he can give this stranger with obvious rage issues um, a bed in their house. Ridiculous. Um, Anyway, while Rocky trains this kid, this Tommy Gunn kid to fight Union Kane. Is he, he played the animal we know? Sorry, Union Kane. I Tommy think Gunn. he, um, I think the real, maybe real boxers, so no, they can't act oh. or anything. So, oh. um, the son starts getting a bit rebellious. Um, the way they, they present this is him pretending to smoke and not inhaling, and he has a little earring which is like a dangling chain with a tiny skull on it it looks ridiculous oh and he rolls up his sleeves obviously um <laughs> alia shire plays adrian who's always played adrian she's weirdly terrible in this film i don't know why I, she's not been that bad before it's like she's acting on a theater stage it's so over the top um there's some really dodgy lightweight hip-hop on the soundtrack uh, like because they're going back to the urban roots and it's like oh it's the most stupidly plotted, plotted of the first five films. It's really the worst of the first five films. It, 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 it feels kind of tired. And while it's not bereft of new ideas as such, but it has pretty much no good ideas. You see what I mean? Um, they do mix things up for the final fight, but it, it, it's so preposterous because it just ends up not with a fight in the ring, but this really, really elongated um, contrived street fight. And which is ridiculous because of course the original film started out with, with a certain rawness to it. But then we've got to this point where two people, two men can have, can have what is effectively a 20 minute fist fight in a street with people cheering around them without any serious injury it's like really um it's just preposterous by then because it's like it really goes against what boxing is all about anyway because why would they be the whole thing about boxing is get in the ring and you know sort it out in a disciplined 
way with rules but of course we've got street fight it's like well it doesn't feel the same with people cheering at that because it just feels like something that they should be breaking up anyway so it's really soapy at times and yeah the plot developments are really silly and it, it it's easily the worst of the first five films and it flopped and that's probably why we had to wait 16 years for a sequel Rocky Five was the was, my father's a big fan of the Rocky films, and I think every year or two he will just go through them all. And I think he Five is the one he said that's just really boring and silly. Even him as like a big fan is like, no, nah, not Five. It is, yeah. Um, so not the best. Pretty unnecessary. Another film that isn't the best is You Should Have Left, starring Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. This was a, a horror film. Uh, released this year that is produced by Jason Bloom. So I thought, oh, Bloomhouse, boom, there's got to be some class there. Whoops. It stars Kevin Bacon is married to Amanda Seyfried, right? In real life, there's a 50, I think it's a 27, 28 year age gap between them. And and it is in this film, there it is, people do reference the fact he's older. At one point, he gets mistaken for a dad. And then when Kevin Bacon's about to laugh, the other guy says, let me finish granddad and then they get then they get married weirdly um so it's a film where um yeah Amanda Seyfried is, a, is an actress on the up and up and Kevin Bacon is bizarrely on IMDb it says he's a screenwriter but he's clearly just a retired investment banker um, he's just doing mobile phone ads <laughs> yeah for virgin mobile isn't it or something or is it EE I don't even know EE I think <laughs> um, that's a genius like he went me- bankrupt at one point I don't know did he really because so. uh, whenever you see an actor like a once big name actor doing like a weirdly large amount of <laughs> of like adverts always look into their background because at some point they've gone bankrupt and they've yeah. signed a contract for 400 years of advertisements i would love it if after this i'm like oh that's interesting rupert and then i click on the tv and instantly it's kevin bacon going do you need to buy a Walter Matthau celebrity sex mask? I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, he does do these adverts. Um, so, yeah, Kevin Bacon, uh, Amanda Seyfried, she's an actress in the Eminem. He's a retired investment banker with a dodgy past. Um, at the start, we're not entirely sure what's dodgy about it. And they've got a young daughter called Ella, I assume. It's quite funny, actually, because in this in this film, there's, she disappears for a moment. And it's him running around a house shouting Ella. And I said to Faye, Christ, he's a massive Rihanna fan, isn't he? That's good stuff. Good stuff. That is, you write that down, you say it to other people. Because she's got a song called Umbrella, and she repeats yeah, the yeah. latter half of the year. So they're in this, they, they decide to uh, go to Wales, of all places, Radnusha in Wales, near Llanbister. <laughs> Obviously, where all, all American rock stars want to go. Um, and they, she's filming in London in, for, in, in two weeks, for eight weeks. So they're going to have a family break going to this house uh in in wales so it shows some nice shots of the countryside i've been a welsh one i was like oh that's quite cool seeing wales in a film they drive up there park the car they go in and they walk around this house right and they they're like oh wow it's so big it's so much bigger on the inside that this is amazing it's awful it's this really it's like wood paneling just gray metal sheets this really uh, like ultra modern awful house full of like corridors and just like joyless charmless rooms it's awful, but they seem to be quite happy with it for some reason at the start of the film. Mm. Um, and then their relationship sort of breaks down. Weird things start happening around the house. He's, people are writing in his journal, and the daughter starts seeing weird things. And 
it kind of ramps up from there. I'm not going to spoil it too much because it, like, it's one of those films where you know the, the sort of mystery in the plot is the only thing it's got going for it. There is a, a really funny sequence in this. I say really funny. It was funny to me where um, Kevin Bacon goes to get some supplies, you know, food and stuff from the local Welsh village. And he goes and there's a bloke in his 60s behind the counter. And Kevin Bacon says, weirdly, he goes up to the counter and just starts asking for stuff instead of like taking it off the shelves when he walks in like you do in any shop. Almost mm. like it was written that way for this specific sequence to happen. So he walks into the shop, goes up and he says, yeah, can I have some eggs, bacon, bread? And the guy says, oh, you still, you'll sell you. And uh, Mick says, I don't speak Welsh. And then it's English. Are you staying? And it was a deal. Uh, so that was fine. I enjoyed that. That was that pretty much made the film. Good, and he was all good, downhill good. after that. Yeah, everyone he meets who's Welsh is hostile and mysterious um, and folkloric in origin. <laughs> oh, well, they got that right then. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah it, and then... The film is just a very, very silly retread of a lot of things we've seen before. And the director, David Kep, who wrote the screenplay, also wrote the screenplay and directed Stir of Echoes. So you know what level you're on with this. He also Mediocrity. Did, <laughs> he also did War of the Worlds, Angels and Demons, Secret Window, Premium Rush, Mordecai, and yes... Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I think he, he co-wrote Jurassic Park as well. Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> um, Kevin Bacon and his wife, Kyra Cedric, were two of countless investors who lost millions of dollars as a result of Bernie Madoff's infamous 2009 Ponzi oh, scheme. Well, yes, yes. Okay, so that's why he's doing the mobile phone. That's why he like signed this. up. Yeah, fair play. It, okay. This one last thing, um, the script in this film. The one thing that was quite endearing is the relationship between Kevin Bacon and his on-screen daughter, um, mm. because she is like like really charming, and and he does seem to like generally care for her because they've got like a bit of a quirky relationship. When you know that, uh, two things. One is the script contains absolute clunkers, like maybe the place, or maybe you don't find the place, the place finds you. <sighs> So just saying something and reversing it, and he he gives he gives the shopkeeper the Welsh shopkeeper gives Kevin Bacon a right angle a plastic like a maths right angle, and Kevin Bacon just puts it up against the wall and the walls aren't pointed correctly they they're like um, they're not perfectly like flush that's supposed to be some reveal. He's like, oh, what? that's weird. The walls aren't straight. Like, what? I don't give. I don't care if the walls are slightly off center. That's not interesting. Um, it's not a good film, but it shows a bit of nice Welsh countryside, and Kevin Bacon has got an interesting face to stare at for 90 minutes. The place finds you. Maybe you didn't sign the script. The script found you, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to say, I mean, I've I've been to Merthyr Tidville, but it hasn't found me yet, put it that way. Yeah, you got um, on the train to go to it. <laughs> yes. And then I left sharpish. Um, right, so <laughs> Rocky Balboa is the sixth film in the series and the final like standalone Rocky film. Sylvester Stallone returns to write and direct. This was only in 2006, so sometime afterwards. Um, and it feels like this was made to round off an otherwise consistent series of film, which was let down by part five. Burt Young somehow returns. Uh, so you've got uh, he's come back uh, um, 
what's the face? Adrian is died. Um, so he visit a grave. Um, here? Oh, oh, as in died. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So I, I, I thought it, it came to the realization here what Paulie's role, Bert Young's role, is throughout all these films because he's kind of an annoyance a lot of the time. But I think he's there. He's there exists as a device to as a counterpoint to sentimentality because Rocky is quite a wistful, sentimental person. And um, and, you know, there's a bit there's a scene in Rocky Balboa where he where Rocky goes back to the ice rink where he had his first date with Adrian and Paulie. And he's in he's getting all emotional and Paulie just says to him, ice is stupid and people on ice are even more stupid. So it's like these sort of like really blunt quite amusing lines and it that's what his role has always been there for to kind of like counteract the sentimentality anyway so rocky is old now he's living a simple life in philadelphia again he's trying to recreate uh, re, re, reconnect with his son um and I, enough time has passed that rocky could be believably poor and hanging out on the streets of philly he works he owns a restaurant actually uh, boring the customers with boxing stories and he wanders the old haunts from the first film and he meets this woman, little Marie, who he met as a, a young girl, which is quite nice because it was genuinely a short scene in the first film. And she's now grown up. She's a barmaid. Um, she's got a kind of wayward son. And the relationship between Rocky and this woman is nicely observed and quite sensitive. He's like almost like a father figure to her, I guess, because um, her self-esteem is just totally shattered. Uh, and Rocky starts training again to release his pent-up anger. His his nemesis this time around is someone called Mason Dixon, who's a, a boxing champ, obviously much younger. But he is this champ is loathed because he always chooses easy fights to you know get his uh, get his titles. He's basically being controlled by a bunch of market men who control his image, um, and they think that fighting Rocky would be good PR after this computer simulation predicts that Rocky would actually win. So anyway, for the first two thirds, it's, it's, it's probably the best written of the films since the first Rocky, and it has the most convincing character developments. Uh, yeah. Um, but it does feel like a, it's a bit of a gentle swan song, I'd say, because the, the final fight is just an exhibition and there's nothing at stake at all he rocky is adored by his fans he's adored by locals even the pundits love him everyone's on his side he doesn't need the money he uh or the pride so and also weirdly the fight is filmed like a regular tv broadcast it complete with like hbo branding on it which is strange mm. um it i think really it's just exists to give rocky the send-off he deserves sort of one final hurrah in the ring um because Otherwise, if you didn't have this, it didn't have this exhibition match and that literally the final fight that Rocky would have had would be scrapping by some bins at the end of part five, which wouldn't have done at all. So, yeah, nothing really at stake. But at the same time, it feels like what's really at stake is almost our pride in the series. And it's nice to give him a kind of send off. So, it's a, yes, it's a good film. It's it's much more and much more in line with the first two films i would say um so it's a nice way to round off the series which would you say so rocky five is obviously the worst which would you say to the series is the best 
for pure entertainment values, four is the best. But uh, I think it's also the most unusual in the series because it's the most silly. So I think I think the original is the best film. I'd say that Rocky Balboa, the latest one, is is a close runner up as well. But I'm not sure that you could watch Rocky Balboa uh, in without having seen at least the first like three films because otherwise a lot of it doesn't really make sense because he's really just going back to old places and remembering stuff and it's nice because he you know they get a lot of the old actors who are in the original and they're just old men now which is quite cool so it's it's quite a nostalgia trip really um but yeah i think the first one is a standalone film and the last one in terms of being just a good send-off um, I'm going to really quickly cover this because, oddly, I don't feel like there's much to say about it. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. Bad Times at the El Royale? No. The, no. the title annoyed me, so... <laughs> You're bloody strict. Uh, this is a film directed by Drew Goddard starring... Uh, well, basically, it's very Tarantino-esque in its sort of setup. It's yes. a It's a hotel, well, motel, on the California-Nevada border, and Jeff Bridges turns up as... Uh, well, everyone has basically got ulterior motives. So you've got um, there's a, a soul singer. Jeff Bridges is a is a priest called Daniel Flynn. Chris Hemsworth rocks up later on as a kind of Manson-esque cult leader, really unconvincingly, with a shirt open. Uh, Dakota Johnson is a ballsy sort of femme fatale. Uh, John Hamm is supposedly a like a, a what are they called a carpet cleaner salesman, and and then we find out that the rooms have got hidden cameras in and. Every every little character has their own sort of vignette, their own little chapter in the film that all blah 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 blah. It was for the first I'd say it's a long film. I've got a feeling it's about oh it's over two hours. Yes, two hours and four uh, twenty minutes. And for the first hour, when the setup was happening, you know, Jeff Bridges is good and, and the the sort of um, introduction sequence was quite all are quite uh, gripping and you think oh, what's gonna happen here then? You know, and I'm a big fan of films split into little chapters with sort of they're almost like, you know, like a little anthology, sort of self-contained anthology, all good. And then I realized as the film was going on that my interest was just ebbing away. <laughs> and by the end of it, when Lewis Pullman, who's Bill Pullman's son, um, rocks up and and everything's kicking off with Chris Hemsworth and there's roulette being played with the, the risk of lives on the line and guns being fired and things being... I just thought, I just want this to finish now. Because I liked the setup and I, I liked some of the dialogue and some of the sort of talky scenes, but... It just it just feels like a I don't know it just felt really bloated like it needed a good like it could have been a really interesting like hundred minute you know uh, and it, to be honest there's nothing much I want to say about it it just I will not remember this film in six months and even now I'm just I can't even muster up the effort to really talk about it in depth so that's that's bad times so right out yeah that doesn't really. That has not drawn me to the film yet. It was the title. The title itself just made me think this is going to be like a Tarantino movie, isn't it? Or it, at it, least it is. attempt to. Yeah. Yes, it is very uh, much that. And I, I mean, I, I I've come to realize that really only Tarantino can do Tarantino, and I'm not even sure I really enjoy a lot of what Tarantino does. <laughs> yeah, I think we're looking back. If I look at this and other Tarantino films like Seven Psychopaths, I well, like I really mm. struggle. They all start off all zippy and you know sort of quippy, and then they just eventually just feel like a, a real trudge. Yeah, 
Yes. So this is just yeah. This is this was um, it was quite tiresome towards the end. It's bloody hell. Um, how many films have you got left? That's it. I'm done. That's I'm it. Done. Okay, I've got four more. But um, do you reckon we can squeeze them in? Um, I think we could. We should. We should save them for next time. I think so. We're just about. We hit two hours, haven't we? Okay. 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 So I think. Uh, yeah, because I've pushed a, a few to the next time as well. So. Yeah. Um, well, I've watched but, a lot of films this week. Yes, you have. But I'm just thinking, like some of some have been interesting, and some have been, I've enjoyed. Some have been disappointing, as always. But I think for me, the one that I probably, apart from the nice guys in the Creep Show Holiday Special, which don't really count, uh, the one I enjoyed the most for reasons I was supposed to enjoy it was the Hitman's Bodyguard, because I'm just a bit of a sucker for buddy comedies. Mm. So that's going to be my film of the week. And your film of the week, I'm assuming, is going to be a Rocky film, Rupert. Mm, yeah. it's Well, I think One Flew of the Cookies Nest actually is the best film I've seen this time around. Ever. Um, but, <laughs> yes. But if you were going to, in terms of the Rocky films, I mean, Rocky, the original Rocky really is, is the one that you could put on now and make sense of and watch a decent movie. And see where it all began before Sylvester Stallone became a strange plastic model of himself. Are you yeah. talking about Famke Hansen now? <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'd say Rocky, 1976, good film. And if you enjoy that, watch the rest of them except five. Oh, do, and do you think, you, you don't think then you could watch the original Rocky and then Rocky Balboa? I think you probably could, to be fair, because all of the character references are there. It's the same location. So, yeah, I think you could. Um, but then you'd be missing out on Rocky IV uh, with uh, Dolph Lundgren. So so maybe watch the first one, then watch Rocky IV. Yeah, that would work. That would work chronologically, sort of. You'd <laughs> wonder why it is that suddenly in Rocky IV, <laughs> Rocky and Apollo Creed are suddenly best mates. But, yeah, yeah I think that could work. Yeah, because Rocky one ends with them as bitter rivals, and and Rocky four starts with them passionately kissing in a hotel room, exactly. doesn't it? Like a, a like a flash smash cut to them kissing passionately. It's um, far ahead of its time. <laughs> the robot is obviously modelled on Paul Weathers. So. Yeah, the robot is like going around the motel room, going "You're kissing, you're kissing." <laughs> that's it. That's all it can do. And then Rocky's like, oh, "I I meant to press the." Turn around and don't look at me, but but I've accidentally flicked the your kissing switch, <laughs> <laughs> and then he flicks it. He flicks it, and then the robot turns around and it's going. I'm not watching you kissing now. I'm not watching you, but I'm aware that you're kissing. That goes on for two hours. Bloody brilliant! Great series <laughs> of films. <laughs> um, cool. Okay then, I'll save these four for the next time. The four you missed out on, by the way. Cube Zero, Escape Room, not that one. TNT starring Oliver Grunner and Hell House LLC 3, Lake of Fire. <laughs> wow. I mean, I knew there was a second <laughs> one, but gosh. And you'll get a both barrels next time, boyo. So right then, <sighs> I'm going to turn off this recording. Or is the recording turning off me? No, you're going to turn it off. <laughs>